Well, we are continuing our study through Paul's first letter to Timothy. Today we're focusing on chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 that we read earlier. So we know that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus to be the pastor of the church that was there in that city. There was great concern over strange doctrines that were being taught. And so as Paul gives Timothy encouragement and instruction on what needs to be addressed and how it needs to be addressed, he's also giving instruction on the proper order of a church. Several things he's mentioned so far. One, we know that he's emphasized the need to teach sound doctrine. That includes addressing those who teach false doctrines. But more than that, it meant holding true to the biblical gospel. Uh, it is only through the gospel that our sin can be addressed. I mean, God's law exposes us as sinners. And then the gospel makes it clear that Christ Jesus came into the world for the express purpose of saving sinners. So that's our hope. Paul took time in the first chapter to talk about how even though he was a notorious sinner, Jesus Christ intervened on his behalf. And so Jesus went from being a non-believer to one who trusted Jesus as the promised Christ. Well, a second thing that's been addressed in Paul's calling is uh, in addressing Timothy's calling to ministry, Paul talked about the importance of how that calling came about. It begins with an inward desire uh, to be a pastor, serve as an elder. This desire is confirmed by other pastors, leaders in local churches, and finally is confirmed by the congregation itself. In chapter 2, we're looking at a third thing that Paul speaks of in the proper ordering of a local church. There needs to be an emphasis on prayer. So in the first chapter, Paul also talked about the need to fight the good fight of faith by keeping faith in a good conscience. Well, holding firm to the gospel, to sound doctrine, was key in fighting that good fight of faith. But prayer was also a high priority. Prayer is one of the main ways that we keep a good conscience by confessing our sins and maintaining our fellowship with the Lord. So Paul said that prayers, petitions, entreaties, thanksgivings, should be made on behalf of all men. He then especially pointed out the need to pray for kings and all in authority. We're praying that they would serve the Lord as he intended by making sure that those who do wrong are punished and those who do right are rewarded. As that happens, we're able to live in peace and be free to practice all godliness in our life. Well, Paul implies then that when Christians live godly lives, there is more opportunity for non-believers to see examples of what it is to believe and follow Christ. And so because right after he speaks of this, he talks about how God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved. He desires people of all sorts to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is a fourth aspect of proper church order, a concern for reaching people who are not Christians with the gospel. So if our God has such a strong disposition to see all be saved, we should have the same concern. When the verses that we're considering this morning, Paul builds on this theme of God as our Savior when he speaks of Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and men. And uh, this is the truth, really, that all men need to come to, to know and understand that you talked about earlier. So let me go and pick up in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 8. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. <clears throat> who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all 
the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So a couple things we can see in these verses. One is the idea of giving glory to God as the one true God and the one mediator. And then we see that believers are to give testimony, really, of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So the first thing we're looking at this morning is this, the glory of God, our Savior. Paul has a high view of God, not just in the sense of having a right belief, not just in the sense of being careful that everything is precisely as it should be. He did have that and understand that clearly. But also his commitment to the Lord and the worship that actually just sprung out of his heart. He's such a great example in that regard of keeping faith and a good conscience. Because in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul closed his time of giving testimony about his conversion with a doxology of praise. Do you remember? He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Well, then in chapter 2, verse 3, he speaks of God, our Savior. Now, as you think about that, <clears throat> it's interesting that he added our Savior. He could simply have just referred to God, and that would have been sufficient. But Paul purposely calls attention to the fact that he is God, our Savior. So as Christians, we never forget that. I mean, salvation is of the Lord. That is just so important to us. Well, that's really what Paul was doing in chapter 1, making sure he remembers that when he, when he ends up saying, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. He was speaking with amazement of God, our Savior. He never got over the fact that God would save him, one who was such a violent aggressor against God's church. So it's truly an amazing testimony to the grace of God to know that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Well, then in verse 5, Paul builds on that. He says, for, there's the connection, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So he makes some basic fundamental statements about God and about the one mediator. It's all meant to give more insight into the truth that God is our Savior and that salvation does belong to the Lord. We also need to keep in mind that Paul is saying these things in the context of speaking of how the church must give priority to prayer. That's still tied in here. So we see here that this next point, prayer is to be offered that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would see that there is one God to whom they must give an account to whom they must give an account. <clears throat> we said last week that when it says in verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved, seems likely that Paul is speaking of just men of all sorts. I mean, men, women, boys, girls, Jews, Gentiles, people who are rich, people who are poor, people who are well-known, people who are not so well-known. And Revelation chapter 7 just speaks beautifully, I think. I just love this passage about the diversity of, of people that will be saved and be eternally with the Lord. Here's what it says. This is Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After these things, John says, I looked, 
and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That passage makes it clear that persons from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be in heaven, are in heaven, and will be in heaven, crying out, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's going to be amazing to see that. It's going to be even more amazing to be a part of that. Another thing that's very encouraging as I read that what John says when he looks into heaven, he says he sees a great multitude that no one can count. It's good to remember things like that because I think we're often tempted to believe that compared to the number of people who have lived and died on this world, that when we think about who's going to be in heaven, there's going to be a handful. Well, that's not at all the impression you get from this passage. Not at all. A number that nobody can count from every tribe, people, and nation all down through history, all over the world. Well, back in 1 Timothy, Paul begins verse 5 by saying there is one God. Very simple truth, but very important in the context of thinking about people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation needing to be saved. Oftentimes, these very different people, very, very different places, have developed various religious systems that refer to many different little g gods. Each person born into that particular nation or tribe, whatever the case may be, are conditioned to follow the belief system, of course, that they're born into. That was just in true in Paul's days. It is in ours. So that's one of the reasons that he makes it clear there is one God. We may think, well, what makes us think that the Christian understanding of God is the right one? It's a good question. Um, let me give you one thought on that that kind of helps, I think. It's an illustration you may be familiar with, with a twist at the end. The illustration is about four blind men who are faced with trying to figure out what an elephant is. And so they get a hold of different parts of the elephant. One of the blind men gets a hold of the tail and thinks, this is a rope. I can tell this is a rope. One of them gets a hold of uh, one of the feet and says, this is a column. It's like a column in a building. One of them gets a hold of the trunk and says, it seems like a large hose of some sort. One of them gets a hold of the ear and says, this just seems like it feels like a big piece of canvas to me. Well, the idea from that is that they all only have one piece of the truth. None of them recognize that it's an elephant. So we're supposed to get from this that all beliefs about God are correct as far as it goes. That's because no one has the whole truth. That's what is said. 
So anyone who says their truth is the correct one is arrogant and wrong. But God's desire, as he said in his passage, is that we come to a correct knowledge of the truth, not just a piece of it. And this whole illustration takes on a whole different tone if the elephant can talk. So to the one who says, this is a rope, he says, no, I'm an elephant. To the one who says, this is a column, he says, no, I'm an elephant. To the one who says, this feels like a large hose, no, I'm an elephant. To the one who feels like he has a hold of a big piece of canvas, he says, no, I'm an elephant. The whole illustration changes if the elephant speaks. The Bible is the inspired word of God. God, our Savior, has spoken. And because God has spoken, we know that there is one God. We don't say that from arrogance. We say it just from faith in what the scriptures and what the word of God tells us. So persons from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation must recognize that there is one God. He is their creator. He is the one to whom everyone must give an account of their lives. The fact that there is one God gives glory to God, our Savior. Just such an important truth to understand. And then Paul gets even more exclusive. He says, also, there is one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we learn from this, the next point, the hope that all men have is that there is one mediator between God and men. This is all of God's grace. The one true God was under no obligation to provide salvation for those who have rebelled against him, which is all of us. He would be perfectly just to condemn us to eternal destruction. But he is the God who saves. He loves to save rebels. That's just amazing. It's also amazing to understand that God saves in such a way that he gets the glory. Now, we get eternal salvation, joy unspeakable, fullness of joy, pleasures at his right hand forever, and all for his glory. But we must also see that God in his grace and wisdom has provided one way to make that salvation possible. He has given one mediator between God and men. There are not multiple ways to be saved from eternal condemnation. There is only one way, one glorious way. It is by faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the one mediator deserves our faith, our praise, our trust, our obedience, our worship, our study, our meditation to further understand. So let's think for a bit about what it takes to be the one mediator between God and men. First is this. The mediator between God and man must be perfectly righteous. He must be perfectly righteous. One thing we have to do here is make a distinction between the one mediator between God and man and a mediator in a dispute that we may have. I mean, oftentimes when there are disputes, maybe between nations or maybe a labor dispute, a mediator will be brought in. A mediator is skilled at negotiations, kind of talks with each side to help see what they can 
what they can give, what they can, uh, how they can give and what the other person can give to kind of bring them closer and closer and closer to an agreement they can both agree on. That's not at all what Jesus does as a mediator. Not at all. He's not brokering a compromise between the one true God and rebellious men and women. Jesus Christ is God, and all that he does is to the glory of God. The terms of his mediation for God on behalf of sinful men and women are all consistent with the righteous ways of God. Therefore, the mediator between God and man must be perfectly righteous. That's because he has to be able to satisfy the perfect righteousness of God. God does not and will not compromise on his standards of what are right and wrong. Because if God were able to compromise what is right and wrong, he would not be God. I mean, righteousness is inherent to who he is as God. That's why man cannot be his own mediator. There is absolutely no way that a person can be in a right relationship with God because of their own righteousness, because of their own good works. Even the best things we do are polluted in some way and not sufficient to meet God's righteous standard. You and I can never be good enough for God. It's just really foolish to rest on the belief that, a per- that you will go to heaven because when you die, you are basically a good person. That's just not true. Multiple times in the Old Testament, the Son of God, the Messiah, is referred to as the righteous one or the righteous branch, a couple of different places like that. In Romans 3.21, we are told that the gospel, the righteousness of God, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's a reference to the fact that Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the law of God in every way. And as the Messiah, he lived a perfectly righteous life. He did this so that he could be the righteous mediator on behalf of lawless men and women. And when sinful people receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we're not only forgiven, we receive his righteousness as a gift placed to our account, a righteousness that Jesus Christ has earned for us. So the mediator between God and man must be perfectly righteous. Second, the mediator between God and man must be a man. He must be a human being. Paul makes a special point of this in verse 5. He describes the one mediator between God and man as the man, Christ Jesus. And actually the word the It's not in the text. You'll have the there. My my version does. But the is in italics to tell you that it's not really in in the Greek text. What it literally says is man, Christ Jesus. Paul does this to emphasize that the Son of God came into the world as the Christ, and he took on the nature of man. He manifested the attributes of humanity. Here's what Paul says about that over in... uh, over in Philippians chapter 2, one of the best summations of this truth, uh, this is Philippians 2, 5 to 7. He says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So that's speaking of the humiliation of Christ. Jesus Christ became a servant in the fullest sense of the word. He laid aside his privileges, so to speak, as eternal God and took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Now that's because in order to be the one mediated between God and man, he had to be a man so that he could satisfy God's justice for men and women. He was born under the law of God as a man so he could redeem those who were also born under the law, which is all people. He became man so that he could accomplish salvation for sinful people. He also had to become a man so that he could suffer and die as a man. The wages of sin is death. If the mediator was going to to successfully accomplish salvation for sinners, he was going to have to suffer the punishment for that sin. He had to die. This is the reason that an angel could never be our mediator. Angels are not human. So therefore, they cannot serve as a mediator between God and man. And third, the mediator between God and man must be God. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Word become flesh. While on trial before the Sanhedrin, they asked Jesus if he was the Son of God, and he said that he was. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ was fully man, but at the same time, also fully God. The Baptist Catechism says it this way, The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The mediator had to be God so that he could bear the full wrath of God against sin, which is what he endured on the cross. The mediator had to be God in order to give infinite worth to the work of salvation. Isaiah 53 says, He bore the iniquity of us all. How can one person bear the iniquity of us all? It's because he was fully God and able to give infinite worth to what he to his death. The mediator had to be God so that he would have the authority to apply the righteousness he earned to others. Who has that right? God does. So, not only can the mediator not be an angel, not only can a mediator not be man, he also cannot be a saint, a glorified saint. There is no place to actually consider a saint in any sense of the word as a mediator between man and God. So praise God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then to be very clear on this, on what the mediator did to accomplish salvation for sinners, Paul says this at first part of verse 6, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we see here the next point. Christ Jesus, the mediator, voluntarily gave himself as a ransom for people from all the families of the earth, as a ransom. So this is another gospel truth that God desires men to come to the knowledge of. A ransom is the purchase of somebody's release from bondage. It contains the idea of substitution. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says it this way. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So consciously and very specifically, the Son of God gave himself as a ransom for sinners. He voluntarily gave himself into the hands of men who hated and despised him. He gave himself into the hands of these wicked men so they could declare him guilty and worthy of death. The Sanhedrin, in cooperation with Pilate, declared that Jesus must die because they said he was a blasphemer. Completely false, but that's what they said. Jesus Christ was fully righteous in all that he said and all that he did. Therefore, there was no reason at all for him to die. The wages of sin is death. He had no sin. There was absolutely not a single reason for him to die except as a substitute for others. So since he had no sin, he could give his life as a ransom. Paul says he gave his life as a ransom for all. As, as he's been doing throughout this chapter so far, I believe he means that Jesus gave his life for men of all sorts. He died for Jews. He died for Gentiles. He died from people from all the families of the earth. In Matthew 20, Jesus said the way he said it was, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Not just a few, many. He died a painful and shameful death so that lawless, rebellious sinners from every tribe, people, and nation could be saved. And as believers, as churches, were to offer entreaties and prayers and petitions to that end. Remember, this is all in the context of prayer as well. I mean, that's all, that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's life-changing, eternity-changing news. And it's all to the glory of God, our Savior. Salvation is of the Lord. And what a blessing it is to come to the knowledge of that truth. Then Paul makes a bit of a shift. Look again at verse 5 and 6. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. That phrase, the testimony given at the proper time, can also be translated as the testimony for its seasons. <clears throat> it means that the amazing news of Christ, having given himself as a ransom for all, is to be testified to by his servants in the times of the gospel, which is now. Now is the season of the gospel. So our second main point is this. Believers are to give testimony to the good news that Christ Jesus has given himself as a ransom. So the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah was no longer just a prophecy. It was fulfilled. The prophecy that said he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities is no longer just a prophecy. Christ gave himself as a ransom. We live in the times of the gospel. 
And the very fact that we live in the times of the gospel means that we have a message to share with others. So as a pastor, it was testimony that Timothy was to be faithful to share. Believers need to be conscious. We need to be conscious of our own testimony of how Christ has changed our life and be able to share that, ready to share that when the opportunity comes. We're blessed to live in times, in the times of the gospel. Paul then makes a personal application of this truth to his own life in verse 7. He says, for this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So from this verse, we see next that Paul exemplified that the gospel is for all by strongly emphasizing that he was appointed by God to take the gospel to the unbelieving nations. Unbelieving nations. Paul was fully committed to being a preacher and an apostle as God had appointed him to be. He considered this a great privilege as well as a sober yet joyful obligation. And to emphasize how important that was, he says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. Almost seems kind of an odd thing to do. He's not saying this because Timothy suspected he was lying. I mean, Timothy was as conscious as anyone of Paul's calling as an apostle. He may have been adding this because there were people in the Ephesian church who were questioning it. Questioning, you know, Paul's calling as an apostle. Do we really, do we really need to do what this guy's telling us? What authority does he have? Which is another reason he probably started the letter off the way he did when he said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ, emphasizing the authority he had. And what he's saying here seems like he may be doing the same thing, emphasizing that authority. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. But beyond that, I think Paul is stating his calling as an apostle in such extreme terms to emphasize what he was called to do. He was called as a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word for Gentiles is the word for nations. Paul is emphasizing that this message truly is for the nations of the world. His own calling is proof of that. And then adding the phrase, in faith and truth, is a further emphasis on the need to stand firm on the content of the gospel. Strange teachings must not be allowed to dilute the gospel truth that he has just explained. And we have an important role in helping people come to the knowledge of the truth because we're called, we have an obligation to give testimony with our life and our words to the good news that Christ Jesus has given himself as a ransom. Then Paul gets back more specifically to his emphasis on prayer. He has a way of kind of moving back and forth in between the things that he's emphasizing. So now he gets back very specifically to prayer that he has started back in verse 1 and 2. But we read this in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So here we can see that believers are exhorted to pray that the gospel would be communicated and received among the nations. This verse is something of a transition between the first part of the chapter and the second part of the chapter. Chapter 2 begins with a strong focus on prayer. 
He then moves to the desire of God our Savior to see men from all walks of life to come to faith in Christ, which is clearly supposed to be something we pray about. And then after he emphasized the responsibility of believers to testify to the gospel, he comes back to the focus of prayer. Verse 8 begins with the word, therefore. So since all these things are true, we need to give attention to prayer. But he emphasizes prayer by especially in calling attention to the men. This is not the word for mankind in general. This is the word designated specifically to those who are male, to men. Well, then in verses 9 to 15, second part of the chapter, the apostle deals with the responsibilities of women in the congregation. So he's making something of a comparison and a contrast here between the roles of men and the roles of women. We'll begin to talk about that more next week. So as I said, verse 8 is especially focused on men. Men and women alike are called to give attention to prayer, of course. But here he's focusing on issues that he sees as being especially relevant to men. One thing I think we need to see here is this. The importance of men as spiritual leaders is especially emphasized here. So the importance of men as spiritual leaders is especially emphasized. Paul calls the men to be people of prayer. He says in all places. Part of that may have to do with not just in a temple or synagogue, whatever. But I think even more specifically for us, I mean, it's whether we're gathering at the church, whether we're at home, whatever it may be, we're to be people who pray. He speaks of lifting up holy hands. Lifting up of hands is a common posture for prayer in the Bible. Uh, it's not the only one, but that, but that is one of the common postures it's spoken of. But the emphasis here really is not on the posture. The emphasis is on the fact that we need to be holy, called this holy hands. Holy speaks of being set apart to God. It speaks of being devout, uh, pious might be another word, pleasing to God. So the emphasis on character of life. No matter what our other responsibilities are in life, the most important responsibility we have is to live to the glory of God. That should affect the kind of friend we are. That should affect the way we make decisions. That should affect the things that are priorities in our life. That should affect how we do our schoolwork if we're a student. That should affect how we do our job if we're a, an employee or even or an employer. It should affect the kind of husband we are, the kind of father we are. It should affect the kind of church member we are. So we are to be people who love the Lord and also love his church. We're to be people who are holy who are devout in a broad sense of the word. Men need to be spiritual leaders, examples to others, both in the church and in the home. It doesn't mean we're perfect, not even close, but it does mean that we're growing in our walk with the Lord, and it affects everything that we do. So we need to be men who stand firm for Christ and for the gospel. Then the apostle gets a little personal. He talks about some challenges that we all face. Again, he seems to be especially direct in these challenges to men. So number two is this. Believers must be aware of anger and dissension because it's a hindrance to effective prayer. It's a hindrance to effective prayer. Prayer is one of the most important responsibilities, both in our personal lives and in the church. It's an expression of faith, to be sure, 
but it also has to be something that's consistent with a clear conscience. There's going to be conflicts that we have with people. That's just life. There are going to be conflicts. Those conflicts are often, not always, but often going to be the result of sin in some way or another, either from either side and oftentimes from both sides of the conflict. Well, if we hold on to anger, anger doesn't take long for anger to become bitterness. And bitterness has a way of poisoning all kinds of things. So if we let bitterness fester, it is a hindrance to prayer. For one thing, we don't even want to pray. But even if we do pray, the fact that that, hint, that, that sin is there is a problem as far as our prayer is concerned. So we have to get these things right with God in prayer. We also have to make things right with others if we have sinned against them in some way. That's true for all of us. That's true for every Christian. It seems that Paul is making a special application to men here, and it may very well be connected to the conflict and the dissension that was being caused by the teaching of strange doctrines in the church. Those were things that needed to be addressed. I mean, this whole letter was started with that. You've got to talk to these guys. You've got to address this thing. But they can be addressed without men holding grudges against one another. Jesus addressed this issue quite directly in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, 21 to 24. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Not only God understands and is calling us to prayer, Satan knows how important prayer is too. He knows how effective it is when we intercede for others for their salvation. He will do all that he can to cause us to become bitter and angry and unreconciled with people. And that proves to be a major hindrance to prayers. But thank the Lord we have that one mediator between us and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's paid the price for our sin. He has accomplished the salvation that we need. He will enable us to walk out that salvation so that we can testify of the gospel and also glorify him in our prayers. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you again for the emphasis that you give us here on prayer. And we thank you that in the context of this, just speaking so much about who you are as the one God and reminding us that there is one true God and reminding us again that there is one mediator between God and man. Thank you so much for what you have provided for our salvation. None of us deserve anything, 
but you've, you've accomplished this salvation because you are God, our Savior. So thank you that that's the God that you are. And we thank you for all that our Savior has accomplished for us. We ask you to help as we continue to seek to walk out that salvation. Uh, as we pray in our relationships with others, we just ask for your help. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you have no mediator. And you will answer to God for your own sin. And that will not be pretty. But God in his grace has provided a mediator. And I would invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your mediator. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. I know I don't measure up. But I thank you for all that was provided for me in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the work of salvation he has accomplished. I need and I want Jesus as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.